You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. So I am really excited. Today I get to sit down with Dylan Neighbor Cruz, and we're going to be discussing a book, of course, that he chose because that's our format. So as most of you know, this kind of leaves me at at the whim of, of my co-host for the day. Um, I'm incredibly happy with the book he chose, though. Um, I'll be honest and say it probably wasn't a book that I would have picked up myself as far as five years ago. Um, but in all honesty, it was fantastic. And so with that, first of all, I want to introduce Dylan, have him kind of step in and give us kind of a back of the book bio about yourself, Dylan, so we can get an idea of who you are. Okay, great. Um, thanks for having me on first and foremost. Um, of course. My name is Dylan and I am a theologian and permaculturist. I tend to see the world through a holistic ecological lens mm. and bring uh, a lot of connecting disparate things into a connecting sort of viewpoint. And I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I'm an, a graduate of Lancaster Theological Seminary. Oh, awesome. And I found out yesterday that you are also friends with my very good friend, Michael Harden. So that's that was kind of cool. I visited him there in Lancaster not too long ago. So, well, actually a couple of years, but um, so that's awesome. I had never been to that part of the country. It was fantastic uh, and very laid back, which I appreciate as I live in Southern California and life here tends to be a little fast paced. Um, so, but now explain a little bit more about permaculturist. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Well, permaculture is a design system that seeks to create uh, sort of cultivated ecosystems mm-hmm. that will benefit all life, not just oh, human beings. Okay. Um, so it is a very much a creation care ethic that I came to through uh, a fundamentalist world, and it kind of helped me to break out of that. Um, oh, wow. Seeing the beauty of the earth and the wholeness of God's creation. Uh, and and conserving it is a theological imperative, which is why I wrote my book, Go Golden. Awesome. I haven't read that yet. And as a matter of fact, I know you mentioned this the other day on Facebook. You said something to the li- uh, along the lines of, uh, a lot of people don't know I wrote a book. I'm apparently not doing a good job marketing it. <laughs> and I was like, he's right. I didn't know he wrote a book. So I'm going to have to get that and, and give it a read. But that sounds fascinating. Um, and and pretty much in line with a lot of my own thinking is as I have evolved, especially within the last five to seven years uh, on my theological journey. Um, so I'm going to have to look more into the idea of permaculture and, uh, and understand that a little better. But for today, I would love for you to introduce the book that you chose for us to discuss um, and give me a little bit of background on why you chose this book. And it, of course, in keeping with the theme of the podcast, which is, of course, you know, inspiration can come through many different sources. Um, what about this book primarily, and I know that's a big question, primarily inspired you? And, and I'll preface this by saying, after reading the book, I can realize that's a difficult question. Um, cause there's sure. so much there, but, but, but please feel free to introduce it. Okay. Uh, the book that we're talking about today is entitled living Buddha, living Christ. And it was by the well-known Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And I first read this book back in 2006 after having left the fundamentalist evangelical world, uh, in a very angry state <laughs> and feeling like I had been uh, lied to and traumatized by my mm-hmm. time as a fundamentalist Christian. 
And so I, I didn't know that there was any way to see Christianity outside of the Southern Baptist and Church of Christ mm. that I grew up in. And when I say Church of Christ, I mean the very hyper conservative. We right. don't have Sunday school. We only have one cup and one loaf. Uh, wow. Church of <laughs> uh, no people of color, no diversity, Yikes. nothing like that. Wow. So I read this. I left the church in 2003 and I read this book in 2006. And I remember while I was reading it, I had this epiphany moment where I went, oh, I could be that Christian <laughs> where I could not be the Southern Baptist version of what a Christian man is supposed to right. be, but I could be this kind of Christian. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that is because the, um, the author of the book puts so much emphasis on the part of our faith that is concrete practice on a moment yes. basis. That was my so, that was my takeaway from it as well. I I it's funny uh, as I started reading it as I mentioned this is probably not a book I would have picked up you know within the la- probably the last 5 years. Um I, I'm I'm not happy to hear that we have a common experience. However, I am encouraged to hear that we have a common experience because oftentimes um we end up feeling alone in an experience when when there's anger involved and leaving fundamentalism and all of that. But I had the same experience. And, and I've been working on dealing with that for quite a few years now as well. And so, as I said, I wouldn't have originally picked up this book simply because my conservative background would not have allowed me to even consider Buddhism, um, right. as I'm sure you understand. <laughs> and uh, but ever, uh, So when you, when you presented the book, I was like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be a new experience for me. And, and I have to say that my takeaway from reading it is exactly what you just said. I can be this kind of Christian. And as a matter of fact, this is the kind of Christianity I was espousing when I was asked to leave the church. Um, I was saying that all of this form without substance is, is useless. Um, and, and, and it has to be more than this, or I'm bored. And I I can't imagine that God wants us to sit around and just pontificate around about him. I I think he has more for us in, in this life than that. Um, and so I found myself very discouraged as I'm sure you did as well. And you're right. I was angry too. I felt like I had been lied to as well. And I felt very disconnected from God because I thought if that's truly who God is, I want nothing to do with him. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> even at the even at the risk of hell from my traditional belief system because honestly I thought you, you're not living up to who you're supposed to be. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hypocritical. Um and of course, you know, those are not popular thought processes. <laughs> Right. You kind of lose your community when you say things like that. <laughs> yeah, I got invited to leave the country more than once. By exactly. Yes. Uh, and my I mean, family. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, even within my own household for a little bit, my husband was quite upset with me for some of my shifts in belief. Um, however, I find it interesting now. It's been a couple years, but he'll say something now. And he even said this not to me to me not too long ago, he said, I realized this is something that I was angry with you for saying a few years ago. And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> so, you know, it's an evolution of thought, an evolution of, it's a journey basically. And I'm coming to realize that. And I really feel like he spent some time talking about that. Like this is, this, this is how you walk out your faith. Um, and, and how amazing and beautiful that is and how attractive that is. 
um, as, as I read through it, I was immediately attracted to a lot of what he was saying. At the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is all Buddhist though. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I had a little bit of a dichotomous argument with myself over the idea, but, but is there something specific? I mean, as I said, I know there's so much in the book, but is there an overarching thing that, that you pick out and go, this was an aha moment for me? Oh, absolutely. Um, I took copious notes uh, mm-hmm. while I was reading it this time. <laughs> Me too. Because it, it was a seminary library copy and I couldn't mark it up. Oh. One of the things that I realized uh, after having not read it for so many years was that this was the first time I'd ever been introduced to the idea of the contextualization of scripture. Right. So he talks about that. When the Buddha taught, it was in a particular time, place, and context. And he said, and when Jesus taught, it was in a particular time, place, and context. And that those contextual uh, meanings are very important, but it's not static. Mm -hmm. So I, when I read it again this week, I was like, oh, right. That's the first time (laughs) that was ever introduced to me because there was no ever any mention of the social historical context in any sermon that I can ever remember growing up. Oh, right. Uh, it was, and, and another theme that, um, not Han brings up in the book is this idea that we can all learn from each other. Right. And in the fundamentalist world, that is not a thing. You don't learn from other people. You impose, you tell people, yes, this is the only way to do things. This is the right way to think. And it reminded me of um, Martin Luther King Jr., who talked about in his speech, Beyond Vietnam, which is an incredible speech, uh, if you've never heard it. He talks about how we in the West or in uh, the United States and other highly developed nations act like we are the bearers of all truth. Right. And that these countries that we're bombing or exploiting or robbing of their resources, they have nothing to teach us. Yeah. And that comes from that whole evangelical fundamentalist style of certitude that is a door closer. It is not a dialogue starter. Absolutely. It is a door closer. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this earlier this morning as as I was going back through my notes that I had taken. It, It occurred to me, and this has occurred to me previously as well. Um, and I'm somewhat disappointed in myself for, for adhering to this thought process for so long. But basically, I feel like in Western Christianity, we have spent so much of our time feeling superior um, to, to everybody else around us, other countries, other religions, other cultures, other societies. And, and so when, when we are presenting our religious perspective, we're doing so from a place of, I know better than you and you need to adhere to what I'm saying, rather than, as he points out, and he actually points out in the first few pages of the book, that authentic dialogue is when we're listening to find a possibility of change within ourselves, and And yet so much of what we do within our Christian tradition is pontificating in order to convert. Yes. And that's disappointing um, because I do think there is so much for us to learn from other people. Um, and and it, as I said, I, it's somewhat egotistical. It, it's it, it puts us on a different level to where we feel like we're, it's not necessary for us to listen to other people. Absolutely. And, and it's just 
we're so ignorant of <laughs> things outside of our own context. I remember thinking all, you know, I have all these answers because uh, <laughs> when I was nine years old, somebody told me to say these magic right. words and I wouldn't go to hell if I died. <laughs> oh right? my gosh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I realized that I was so ignorant when I was a fundamentalist. Like I had no idea about any of the things in the Christian tradition that were truly, and I mean, truly atrocious. Yeah. And I will have, now that I'm a, a seminary educated theologian, I, I consider myself a public theologian. So I engage people online in theological discourse a lot. And I see the same level of ignorance yeah. uh, with people. A, a gentleman on Twitter recently said that you couldn't be anti-Semitic and believe in Jesus. And I was like, <laughs> have you heard of Martin Luther? <laughs> like, Dude wrote a whole book, right? Exactly about anti-Semitism, and it's what Nat Han talks about. He says, for any dialogue between traditions to be deep, we have to be aware of both the positive and negative aspects of our own tradition. And until we do that, we're going to be stuck. Absolutely, and and again, I think it comes back down to an ego thing. It comes back down to I need to be correct and right, and we've misidentified that and called it faith. That's my personal opinion. Yes, we have said, well, faith means I never doubt that I stand firm in my conviction and my belief set. Um, and yet, what I have found, especially within the last few years, however, is because my faith was rocked so violently. Um, what I have found is is faith is a mystery, and I don't have the first clue. And I'm basically I'm just kind of here and I'm waiting for the answers to present themselves. Um, and mm-hmm. I believe they will at some point. Um, and, and I have of course reached a few conclusions along the way, but I've reached them with the mindset of this may not be the final stop on this train journey. <laughs> right. This, this is just right. the most recent thing that I know. Whereas previously it would have been, no, this is the totality of truth. Um, and and I actually have mentioned many times, especially in my on my Facebook page, um, you know, for those of you that are are hanging out with me, if you feel you have reached the totality of truth, please feel free to you know to move on until the rest of us catch up with you because I, I don't have time for that anymore. I, I feel like that's a wasted effort on my part to try and change those people's minds. I feel like that's a place that they'll have to reach on their own. Um. But there are so many people out there that are in need of people to be vocal about, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to not know the answers. It's okay to involve yourself and engage yourself in the mystery of God, you know, and it's actually attractive. So I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I I don't adhere to any kind of set thing at the moment. Um, It all feels like it's a lesson in progress to me. Yes. That's one of the things that, that strikes me about sort of orthodoxy, uh, particularly from the, the the truly conservative sort of fundamentalist and evangelical world that I came up with, is that it was all about having a prescribed set of right beliefs, mm-hmm. but there was almost no focus on spiritual practice. Yes. And Jesus in the Gospels, it is incredibly clear that he engaged in spiritual practice. Right. Now there's a lot of stuff that uh in the gospels when I read them now or in other books of the Bible that I am like I literally have no idea what this is trying to tell me. <laughs> um 
and I've gone to seminary and I've taken graduate level, you know, mm-hmm. biblical interpretation classes. And it's more of a mystery to me now than it was then. Right. But orthopraxy, the right practice of prayer and of living out uh, our faith and embodying the kingdom of God, which Thich Nhat Hanh talks about a lot in the book, was never the focus. It was always the focus on converting people and, and helping people not to go to hell. Exactly. Which I no longer believe in that. So, right. <laughs> but I, I came to a conclusion before I read this book that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, nobody gets to the Father but by me, that he meant, look at what I'm doing. Look right. at what I, how I live. And so it was really affirming to me when I read this book and he said precisely that. Mm-hmm. And I had conversations with fundamentalists, uh, with my ex-wife who um, remains a Southern Baptist uh, chaplain, that my Christianity back in 2003 boiled down to the golden rule mm-hmm. and to the greatest commandment. Mm-hmm. And she literally looked at me and said, oh, you're doing that weird hippie Bob Marley oh. shit. <laughs> yeah, never went, mind. Um, That's the crux of the whole foundation. <laughs> I, I just stood there flabbergasted and went, well, no, if you look, that's exactly where Jesus said the focus should be. Exactly. And so if we can, if we can bring mindfulness into our uh, day-to-day interactions in the world, which is incredibly tough. Yes. I mean, there, there's nothing easy about what Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about. It's simple, but simple and easy are completely different things. Absolutely. I, and I um, want to, I want to come back to mindfulness in a minute, but I, I wanted, I had taken a note on something that you're saying, and I wanted to point this out because I thought he really did a very good job of this in the book. And that was the, the compare and contrast, um, between the idea of Jesus as a historical figure and Jesus as the Christ. Um, yes, because that, that I, I think that for most people just within their regular Christian viewpoint and what they've been taught on Sunday mornings, there's no differentiation between those terms. And of course there is. And then of course he contrasts that with the historical Buddha and then Buddhist mindset or Dharma, if I understand it correctly. Yes. And again, this is very new to me, but it, it struck me that he's saying the same thing. Like, yes, there are her, those are both historical figures and their life had value because of how they lived it. But the way they lived it is actually the value that continues on. And, and I think we miss that. Like you're saying, it's, it's the orthopraxy. And again, that was a term I was not familiar with for a long, long time. I'm embarrassed to say quite honestly, um, I'd heard orthodoxy. And of course that made a lot of sense to me. But putting into practice what I believe was, it was foreign to me. And, and I'll tell you this, I don't know if you had this experience or not, but I actually had an experience where I, I, I believe I heard God speak to me. I was waking up and he actually said to me, um, beyond the cross, Michelle. And I was like, what does that mean? And, and he, mm. there was a list of words that he gave me. And, and what I actually came away from that experience with is I have lived my entire Christian experience and life on my face in front of the cross, begging for forgiveness, living in guilt and shame, and being very narcissistically me-centered in my belief system, and never realizing that I was supposed to pick myself up, move forward, and show other people what the life of Christ actually looks like. 
Yes. And I mm-hmm. believe 100% that Christianity has created this very me-centered focus in complete opposition to what it's supposed to be, the other focus, the sacrificial lifestyle. Um, now, that's just my, that's my perspective. That's what I've learned. I don't know if that's everybody else's experience or not, but, um, but to me, that kind of spoke more to the idea of orthopraxy and living that Christ ethic, if you will. There, there is a great deal of selfishness in the idea that it's all about individual salvation. Right. If, if that's where we put the crux of, of the issue, then of course, we're going to become myopically focused. Yes. And then we won't be able to preach the gospel and only use words as a last resort. Right. And I, I used to listen to this Christian reggae band called Christ Afari, and <laughs> they had a song and it said, preach the gospel, use words only when necessary. Right. And I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They will know you by your love for one another. Right. You know, they will not know you by you knocking on the door and saying, hey, if you died tomorrow, would you go to hell or heaven? Like, that's not right. how they're exactly. going to know Jesus. Well, I mean, I grew <laughs> up I grew up singing a song as a child. Um, they will know you are Christian by your love, by your love. And but that was never my experience. That That's not right. what I experienced. It's just a song that we sang. So those words become almost without meaning to you, that you become anesthetized almost to the idea of what those words mean. Um, yeah. And you go to church and then you, and you go, look at me, how, how great I believe and right. how certain I am. Yeah. And then you leave with this great deal of self-satisfaction and go out to lunch and then treat the server like right. garbage because they have to work on a Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that is very disturbing in, of course, in hindsight and in hindsight, of course, always being 2020. Um, I, I spent, I don't know if you had this experience or not, but I spent a lot, uh, quite a while after leaving, uh, fundamental Christianity berating myself um, and feeling, oh, yes. feeling pretty stupid and, and quite honestly questioning, like, how did I miss this? Was I asleep this whole time? I, I Where was I? And why would I have never questioned these? And it's honestly uh, ironic to me now. My husband will say the same thing quite often now. Um, you know, I remember thinking this occasionally, but then I would shut it down because that wasn't faith, you know? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's unfortunate because maybe we would have come to these conclusions earlier, although I tend to believe we get there when we're supposed to. So, Yeah, I had a similar sort of experience where when I, st- I started my undergraduate studies uh, sort of later than most people, I was in my late 20s and my bachelor's is in history. And I started, you know, just studying global history from ancient times to, you know, sort of modern. And I started making these connections mm-hmm. that were undermining the fundamentalism and they weren't necessarily related to religion. They were just worldview kind of things. And my ex said, Oh, we all go through that. You'll come back and you'll be just <laughs> fine. But Pandora's box was opened at yes. that point. And, <laughs> and I started to find fundamentalism both spiritually and intellectually bankrupt. Yes. And, and I, I would look for the words in red in my Bible when I had a red letter edition and I would, you know, in a very imperfect and totally flawed way, try to follow those. And one of the things that I remember was that 
before Jesus started his ministry, he went out into the desert, we're told, for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and praying. And I and I thought to myself, well, all these people that say they want to be Christ-like, when did they do that? Right. When did they go out and fast and pray? And, you know, I've never done it. I've never done that for 40 days and 40 nights the way he did. Mm-hmm. But I started uh, following the Lenten calendar. Um in the last few years. Mm. And so I now have spiritual practices that I think are very enriching. Uh, meditation is one of those. Right. And I, I've been meditating um, for years since I read this book, uh, The Living Buddha, Living Christ. But my meditation practice has been really enriched by my time in seminary and by deciding that during the Lenten fast that every day without fail, 30 minutes of content prayer meditation and scripture reading every day. Hmm. And so that has now become my daily practice because I focused on it for the 40 days and 40 nights. Right. You know, I obviously can't just abscond and and go off into the desert for 40 (laughs) days and nights, uh, bills and cats and that sort of thing. And you don't have a desert. so (laughs) Right. Um, but I can do, I can engage in the practice of contemplative prayer right. and the practice of enacting the golden rule when I think about things, uh, when I go shopping or when I interact in the car or uh, while I'm driving down the road and um, Petros the stress demon starts to <laughs> kick in. And yeah, I, I know go, that one well. <laughs> okay. How could I be mindful about this instead of, you know, exhibiting symptoms of PTSD? Right. And if, you know, it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's a practice. It is a journey. It is not an event. Well, exactly. And I think that I know for me, I, I have a very difficult time sitting still for any length of time, unless I'm actively engaged you know, in doing something. Um, so I struggle with that, with the whole meditation thing, but that is something that, that I had started working on. Um, and, and so going back to what, what he brought up so much throughout the whole book, the mindfulness aspect, I was immediately, because very early in the book, he, he mentioned the idea of mindfulness, um, of, of, to the point of being when I'm eating, I'm eating. And when I'm walking, yes. I'm walking. And I, I don't think about things like that because in our lifestyle, it's very busy. You know, we're multitasking and, and I'm always doing five things at once guaranteed. So it, to me, I sat yesterday at lunch and I thought, what if I just sat here and thought about chewing? Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm horrible. I was horrible at it. I, I found my mind wandering all over the place. But as you said, it is a practice and not expecting perfection of ourselves is a part of that journey. Um, and we do get better at it. Um, but I found that yeah. to be really attractive in thought. When Even when I first read it, I thought, oh, how peaceful that sounds. And and how encouraging and um, revitalizing that sounds. You know, and, and that's something I would really like to consider. <laughs> and for me to consider it, it means I'm going to think about it for a long time before I even try it. So, <laughs> But I, I was drawn to that. I felt like there was a lot of value there. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, when I read this book many years ago, I started doing some walking meditation, which I walk 
like a race walker in the Olympics. <laughs> I have had people stop me on the street and go, dude, where are you going? <laughs> because I walk so fast. And we get in this autopilot habituated mode of being mm -hmm. and we're doing things without realizing that we're doing them. So the slowing down uh, and, and taking a step with each in breath and out breath. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. That totally changes. I mean, when I first started doing it, I could barely walk. I would stumble and start <laughs> to fall over because I was having to think about what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Instead of being on autopilot. And and think about this in, in our interpersonal interactions, whether they are with people that we know uh, and love, which can be truly tremendously challenging, or with random people out in the in the world. If we brought that mindfulness into the interaction and recognize that the person that with whom I'm interacting has some pain that they have that's unresolved. Yeah. And that may be manifesting itself into this interaction right now. And then you go, Oh, well, I know what it's like to, to feel pain that's unresolved. And then you can touch that compassion that right. Thich Nhat Han talks about yes. or that Jesus talks about. And then, and then. As he says, you are embodying the living Christ. Mm -hmm. You are making Jesus real by living out his teachings. You are making the Buddha real by living out the Buddha's teachings in those moments of mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion. Right. So one of the reasons that I wrote my book was because that I didn't see people practicing living out the golden rule with mindfulness. And I think that if we do that, if we take Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, suggestions seriously to be in the present moment, that we will be better Christians. We will be more open to uh, compassion and to embodying the living Christ that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about when he says that, that the teaching of Jesus enacted is how we bring about the kingdom of God. Right. Right. And that is such a powerful counterbalance to the idea that um, that it's all about right belief. Right. And and well, not the, about right practice. Well, one of the things that that struck me um, and I wrote this down, uh, if you only satisfy yourself with praising a name, even the name of Jesus, you're not actually practicing the life of Jesus. Um, was something that he mentioned. And and I think to me that says so much because that was so much of my church tradition, my church experience was, of course, you know, you go to church, we're there to worship God, we're there, you know, to focus on Jesus. And yet very few people that walked out of the doors, and of course I won't speak for everybody, but in my impression, very few people that walked out of the door actually look like Jesus outside the door. You yeah, know? absolutely. And 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 in all honesty, um <laughs> it's funny. I was just talking with this about this with somebody yesterday. Um, when 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 I was asked to leave my church, uh, I had been at a meeting um, prior to that, and I had made the comment. Um, we were being told why uh, how it was our fault that our church was not growing, mm -hmm. and I, I was I was frustrated by that. But I was also tired. It had been a long week, and I thought I'm just going to shut my mouth. I I'm just losing patience, and. 
but I apparently had a very bad look on my face um, because the gentleman that was telling me, telling us it was all our fault said, do you have something you need to say? And I thought, well, all right, you opened this up, pal. So um, I said, well, I'll be honest with you. You're sitting here telling us why it's all our fault that we don't have more people in, in seats in this church. And I said, I'm going to tell you right now that I could not care less if another butt ever falls in another seat inside this building. I said, I'd be much more interested if we were going to talk about the fact that the people in this building should get outside of the building and actually look like Jesus. Yes, And there was complete silence. And it was in that dawning moment that I went, I am done here. Without a doubt, Mm -hmm. I am done here. And I was. Um, But I I stand firm on on that conviction because I do believe that 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 is the point. That is the purpose. And that's what he's saying. Look, if you spend all your time with your hands in the air praising Jesus, at some point you have to look around and go, this is rote repetition. This is idolatry. This is not a lifestyle. This is an escape. Mm-hmm. And, and I really feel like that's what a lot of church attendance is. And, and I know I'm going to catch all kinds of flack for that. I already catch all kinds of flack because I don't actually attend a church right now. But <laughs> the, the fact is that I really felt like I'm of more use outside of this building than I've ever been inside of it. Mm. And, and, uh, and so that's where I'm going to put my focus. And I think that's what he's saying. Like if, if your focus is merely on this worship side of it, you're missing the whole lifestyle side of it, um, right. which is what actually changes people's minds and their lives and their experience. Um, so, but, and, and I have a theory on this and I think he kind of touched on it. Do you remember the example that he gave about, uh, the sunflowers? And he said, seeing the sunflowers and seeing the rain and the soil and everything there. Yes. So (laughs) even before the sunflower appears, being able to see the field of sunflowers. And what that struck me with was the idea of we have to be able to see God in everybody before we can ever be of use to them. Because if we see them as merely an interruption to our day until they decide to follow God or say those magic words, like you said earlier we're missing it. We're supposed to be able to see prophetically into those people and, and see that seed of God that we then begin to nurture and help grow. And I think that's where we're missing it. And I, and I think that's why this book was so attractive to me because he, it seems as though that has become his point. That yes. This is a part of our lifestyle of engaging in community and engaging in, um, relationship and mindfulness with one another, not just with God, which I loved. Yeah. I mean, he said, I think it is important to look deeply into every act and every teaching of Jesus during this lifetime and to use this as a model for our own practice. And what you just said reminded me of the uh, story of when Jesus goes to the rich guy's house and the, the woman who is named as a sinner comes Mm. and she starts to anoint uh, Jesus's feet. And Jesus looks at her while he's speaking to the host. And as he looks at her, you, it it is very clear in the text that he is seeing this woman's humanity, right? He is seeing this woman as a child of the living God. And he wants her to know that she is seen, loved, forgiven and that grace uh, abounds. Right. And, you know, sometimes I'll be walking down the street and I'll see somebody um, who is 
perhaps in a despairing situation or, uh, you know, or even somebody who's like driving a Lexus and, and an, a judgment will just <laughs> pop into my head. And then I'll think, you know what? That person is a child of God. Right. You know, um, Mike Pence is a child of God. Now, yes. I don't agree with that man <laughs> on just about anything. Me either. But yes, I get your point. Absolutely. But he's going to get the same grace that Dylan gets yes. for all the stupid shit Dylan has done. Exactly. You know, and and so it's different, perhaps, in level of, of atrociousness or, <laughs> or level of impact. But it's still like like he said when he was comparing the orange and the mango, he said, you know, they have they're both real fruit. Right. But they have different constituent parts. But you can't say that they're not both fruit. And so myself and Mr. Pence are both children of God. Right. But we have different uh, radically different beliefs on, uh, you know, the role of women or whether right. climate change is a thing or, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that, that the rainbow children of the LGBTQIA community are perfect, uh, just the way they are. Right. Those kinds of, you know, but I think that if, when I walked in that world, I literally, I went in 1992 to a mall that, um, that had a, a stand where you could get hats and things made. And I had on a hat, I support gun rights and gay control. Oh my goodness. <laughs> because because one of my sergeants had said that during a discussion about don't ask, don't tell. Right. And I had literally just been indoctrinated by my church to believe that all the gay people were trying to undermine everything. Right. My ex-wife literally told me that she said that the Roman Empire ended because of yes. the homosexual behavior. <laughs> yes. Which um as a historian I just have to say that that's not a thing. Exactly. But, <laughs> But I was walking in a delusion right. of phony certitude and no mindfulness whatsoever. And I could not have looked at a gay person in 1992 knowing they were gay and seen a child of God. No, exactly. And it is by grace that now I can. And now I affirm and love them just exactly as they are and right. see that they were created by God because God loves diversity. Yes. Well, um, I, I find it interesting. I mean, I was, of course, raised with a lot of those same beliefs. Those, um, I, I will say this, uh, and, and my husband and I have had these conversations often. Um, while at one point I, um, had the, I shared the same belief system with you as far as um, homosexuality, you know, of course, which is a big no-no in, in Western conservative Christianity, um, it, it never occurred to me that people should be treated badly because of it. Like, and, and I had gay friends, I had, you know, uh, gay people that I worked with and all this. And, and I, I remember making, you know, having people make comments like, well, how do you work with that person? And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's another person, you know? So that part didn't, I didn't go quite out there that far, but in, in practice, I guess it, it's the same thing because I still believed that they were going to hell. Right. Uh, I still believed that God couldn't love them because they were in some form of rebellion. Never mind that I probably was as well, it, it, you know, in some other form. Um, but it, I think what what that stand what stands out to me in that, and he makes this point in the book as well. Um, in the section on community, uh, he gives the example of a hammer and a nail, 
And he's mm-hmm. like, if you strike your hand with a hammer, um, the right hand never says to the left hand, well, I'm doing charitable work for you by helping. It's just, a, it's, they're a part of the same thing. And so there's care and concern. And, and I think that that is a beautiful allegory to what humanity is supposed to be. The fact that there is no us versus them, it's just us. Yes. And then if we are able to see the seed of God within each person, we then begin to treat those people as though they are valuable to God. And and so it's no longer charity say charity to say, well, I don't believe in homosexuality, but, you know, I'm not going to be mean to somebody about it. Well, that that's almost a charitable idea in our mind somehow when the reality is that's your family. That's right. your body. And and we have to be able to embrace that in order to embrace God. Um, my going theory, and, and again, this is just where I'm at on the journey, is that that we as humanity, the totality of humanity is God. And so yes. it makes sense then that we have to pray for our enemies and, and or love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us because they are us. And it makes sense that we're supposed to, you know, love one another. And the golden rule, all of those things that you mentioned, they, they now make sense because it is us. It's no longer them. And, and, or that's where I am anyway in this little journey. But I love that he spoke to that because I, I literally, it's not even funny. I, I was sitting reading again yesterday, going back through it. And I got tears in my eyes a few times. And I thought, this is what Christianity is supposed to look like. Right. And I actually texted a friend of mine. I think, you know, Matt, you know, Matt, right? Matt, just mm-hmm. I texted Matt and I said, oh my God, Matt, I think I may be Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> and he texted me back and he's like, welcome to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and quite honestly, the uh, even more humorous, I came home and said that to my husband last night and he got this kind of screwed up look on his face because I know that reaction because your immediate visceral reaction to that is as a Christian is like, oh my gosh, you know, but I said, but think about the format. Think about the ideas, the practice of what Christianity is supposed to look like. That's what this is espousing. Yeah. So it's beautiful in its in its in its presentation. Well, th- think about the passage of scripture where Jesus, um, I think it was Jesus, said, mm-hmm. you know, "By your fruits you will be known." Mm-hmm. And so, if you're a Christian who thinks um, that you have it all figured out and that you couldn't possibly learn something from a, a Vietnamese monk who was a Zen master, well, look at the fruit of this book. He talks about the the loving your enemies, and he right. says the second that you love that person, they can no longer be an enemy. Right. So yeah. that is the radical flipping of the script that the gospel brings us. Yeah. And and I don't know that I ever really understood that until I read this book all mm-hmm. those years ago, and then had it reiterated to me again this past week that, yeah, there are, there are people in this world that have done heinous things um, yeah. to me as an individual. And part of my journey to wholeness and wellness and to walking with Jesus and embodying the living Christ is to be able to look at those people, see that they are children of God, and love them. Right. So that they are no longer an enemy. Right. And, and, and I, I think, think that, I'm sorry, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I, I think that 
for me anyway, and I, I, you know, I won't speak for everybody that, um, you know, has a trauma related background, but for me, I have, because of that trauma, sometimes gone out of my way to make people enemies who weren't right because I'm expecting something bad to happen. Right. You know? Yeah. But I could flip that script by looking at that person and saying, here's a child of God. Here is a person that I love because right. simply because they are. Yes. They are here now. Well, and, and, and I've, ta- I've had to confront that. Yeah. And I've had to confront that as well. I have, I have uh, quite a bit of abuse in my past and, you know, I've had to confront my ideas on, on those people that were responsible for that abuse. I've, I've mm-hmm. had to decide, you know, that I'm able to function. Now the, the problem with that, and I'm sure you understand this as well is sometimes there's those subconscious triggers, um, you know, that, that suddenly elicit a response and, and now you're looking around going, okay, I just reacted badly there. Um, so a part of that journey is of course, recognizing that and refocusing, um, but yes, learning to view that other person as a child of God actually does psychologically help with forgiveness, with um, continuing relationship, if that's the case. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of psychological value in reconnecting and, and seeing one another as community. Um, now, I don't think that necessarily means I have to have an ongoing, you know, in face, face-to-face relationship with that person every day, but... Oh, but absolutely being, not. <laughs> yeah, but being able to see the value of that person as a person is still important, N- not only for them, but even more so, even though it sounds somewhat selfish, more important for me because bitterness will eat us up. Um, yes. And so it is important for us to recognize in, in finding the value in that other person, we are actually releasing ourselves from a lot of negativity that could be very harmful to us. And that is the substance of forgiveness. That is one of the foundational issues of Christianity as, as shown to us by Jesus, that, that art of forgiving, even in the midst of the most violent act against him, father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You know? Right. And, and how often do we say that? I, I can be honest and say, I, I think I've very rarely thought about that perspective when somebody is doing me wrong. So. Yeah. It can be very hard to see <laughs> past the immediacy right of the wrong action or the mm-hmm. hurtful tra- traumatizing thing. Right. And, you know, um, as somebody who has that as part of my lived experience, I'm always going to defer to taking care of, of the victim. Yes, me first. too. Me too. <laughs> but at the same time, I have to remember that the person that's engaging in the, the action that's harming others the most likely scenario is that they're carrying some kind of pain. Most people don't just come out and go, Hey, I'm going to be sociopathically evil. Exactly. (laughs) You know, there's an extenuating circumstance there somewhere. Right. And we all live in a world that is uh, at times just one giant cesspool (laughs) that we're all swimming around in. And so you can't, you can't get out of that cesspool without having a lot of yucky, smelly stuff clinging yeah. to you. Absolutely. And we're all carrying that around. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the lovely things about Jesus is that he knows that. Yes. And he asks us to see beyond it. Yes. To see the people as God sees them. And that, again, 
is a mindfulness practice. So mm-hmm. a lot of times when I'm walking, I walk a lot around Lancaster. It's a lovely uh, walkable city. Right. If somebody walks past me, I often in my mind say, peace be with you. Right. Or, you know, something along those lines, just to remind myself that whoever that person is, God's pe- God wants God's peace to go with them. And yeah. therefore I should want that peace to go with them as yeah. well. I think that's I think that's a lovely practice. I, I personally am a very empathic person, so I pick up on everybody's emotions and the atmosphere oh, around yes. me. So if you were to walk past me and do that, I would absolutely feel that and receive it. And so I mm. think that that is a beautiful thing, um, and that we should all concentrate on doing that. Um, be, and again, because in the long run, while it is to the benefit of somebody else, it's also to our benefit. Um, and and I agree with you. Jesus was a great adherent to that. And and I'll add to that, uh, one of my favorite ideas of Jesus is the fact that even though there's all that slime that he's aware of, he's not afraid to sit down in it with us yes. and, and to, and to sit with us until we're ready to get out of it. Um, and, and again, as you said, that takes mindfulness as well for us to knowingly put ourselves with people in difficult situations and have a a sense of patience with that and a sense of peace and love with regard to that person in that circumstance is actually Christ-like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. So here's what I want to ask you. One final takeaway from the entirety of the book. um, And again, I know that's a difficult question, but something that is now that you've read it again for, you know, the second time, something that's going to walk with you for the next few weeks or so as a sense of importance. Right. I'll leave you with a quote from the book. It's toward the end. Mm -hmm. It says the true body of Jesus is his teaching. The only way to touch him is to practice his teaching. Mm -hmm. The teaching of Jesus is his living body. And this living body of Christ manifests itself whenever and wherever his teaching is practiced. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I have a quote written down close to that too, that the only place we can touch Jesus and the kingdom of God is within us. And, yes. and so, you know, finding that place within ourselves and, and walking out that ethic seems to be the most mindful thing that we can do to our benefit and to the benefit of ourselves and society at large. Um, yes. So I'm so appreciative of the fact that you chose this book again, it, you know, it may have been something I would have picked up now, but it not consciously thought like, oh, I should go get that book. But I so, so enjoyed this book. And honestly, there's so much here that we haven't even touched on that yeah. I think I'm going to have to go back and read it several more times just because there's so much there that really speaks to me as how I want to walk out my Christian belief system um, and and how I want to look like Christ. Um, I find so much value there. So thank you so much for, for choosing the book and, and thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and just chat with me about it. I, I love doing this, this, this back and forth ideas and, and, you know, perspectives of one another is so valuable. Um, and I learned so much this way. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks very much. And, um, I'm sure we'll chat again. I hope so anyway. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. 